This week, Future Hindsight is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love for you, dear listeners, to support our podcast directly on our Patreon page by joining the Civics Club. We feature bonus interview content, transcripts, and early access. This week, we have all the extended answers from this episode, and we're making it free for you because we think it's so important. Head over to patreon.com slash futurehindsight to listen to the bonus content. And while you're there, please consider joining our Civics Club community for just $1.99 a month. Thank you. I think a lot of people have pride without focusing on money. But when there's also greed added to it, that can help explain why men are allowed to do bad things without accountability. Because the, the structure of our society is such that if you're a wealthy person, you're less accountable than somebody who's not so wealthy. It's often the case that these wealthy people who make money are the ones who are allowed to get a free pass because they're not only greedy making money for themselves, but they feed the greed of other people. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Martha Nussbaum, American philosopher and the Ernst Friend Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. Her latest book is Citadels of Pride, Sexual Assault, Accountability and Reconciliation. She says that we have a very long history of women being objectified, treated as things as opposed to as humans. And she argues that objectification, treating a person as an object or a thing, stems from underlying character traits, namely vices of domination like pride and greed. Our conversation starts with defining pride and how it works. I'm using pride, but in the sense that it's been traditionally regarded as a sin or a vice. And so my starting point is actually Dante's Purgatory, where he depicts the proud as bent over themselves like hoops so that they can only see themselves and parts of their own bodies. They can't see out and they can't listen. And that is what a lot of people are like. They're narcissistic. And I'm arguing it's that kind of bent over narcissism that underlies the treatment of women as mere things. Of course, it's not only women. There's racial pride. There's class pride. And of course, gender pride. And some people have all three. Some people have one without the other. But I think it's fair to say that most men in all societies until very recently have been brought up to have gender pride. They think that women are not full people with autonomy and subjectivity. They're there to be for them. They're helpmates in the benign case, or they might be sexual tools in the more malign case. And of course, they might be both, but they're just not people in their own right. So what I'm trying to say is if we think about that vice and how our society encourages it in bringing people up and in the structure of laws and institutions that make men accountable to nobody but themselves for what they do to women, then we can understand how objectification comes about. Feminists had written about objectification for years, and I too had written about it, but I think it's not enough to describe it. We have to ask, what underlies it? What really makes it happen that way? Because most people are basically good and capable of goodness, 
but they get, as Sante describes, bent over themselves so that they really can't see or hear. Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the way that you describe it is not only that this is a personality trait, but also that this is reinforced by our society and the way that we have a hierarchy, which makes it very easy for people to abuse their power and get away with it, especially in the United States. You argue that American men are primarily interested in accruing power through money. And so how does greed fit in to this picture? Well, I think a lot of people have pride without focusing on money. But when there's also greed added to it, that can help explain why men are allowed to do bad things without accountability. Because the the structure of our society is such that if you're a wealthy person, you're less accountable than somebody who's not so wealthy. It's often the case that these wealthy people who make money are the ones who are allowed to get a free pass because they're not only greedy making money for themselves, but they feed the greed of other people. So Bill Cosby was an obvious case of that, but he was just an example. And I remember when the Cosby case came out, everyone was saying, oh, there's one bad apple in the media world. Actually, I had been assaulted by a very similar media star, and I wrote about that story. And immediately when I wrote it, so many people wrote to me saying, oh, yes, this has happened to me. And I think what's so interesting is that as long as the people are healthy and well and making lots of money for other people, then no one touches them. But it's the minute they're old and sick James Levine, the conductor, for years, everyone knew that he was abusing young men. And by the way, sexual abuse can target powerless men as well as women. But it was only when he was too old and sick to really go on making money for other people that he was finally brought to accountability or some measure of accountability. So I think that's where greed comes in, that people are willing to just look the other way because everyone is making a profit. Yes, only when the bad actor is disposable does this person actually get disposed or held accountable. Um, One of the things that you mentioned just now is about your own experience. And I think there is this idea that, like you said, that this is a rare occurrence, but actually it happens to a lot of people. And I think most women know somebody to whom this has happened to if it hasn't happened to themselves and or have been the subject for sure of some type of harassment. I think that, you know, at the workplace or on the street being catcalled, I would say that the occurrence for women is approximately 100%. And so... One thing that you mentioned in the book is that there is a chasm in the understanding of when something is forced and unwanted, and that we basically inhabit a different reality, that men have a different perception than women. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that helps us understand our next question. Yeah, I think that men for a long time have had this picture that if a woman is out there sexually and she obviously isn't a virgin, then it's okay to do anything you like. That's one false belief that men have had. But another false belief is that if you take the woman out and you pay for dinner, then you're owed something in return. And there's actually a great sociologist of our university, Ed Laumann, who did a a quantitative survey on this. And what he found was that there is this gender chasm, that there are many more women who report having suffered something forcible sexually than men who claim that they've done it. Now, it might be that there are a few 
perpetrators. But then he says that's not very likely. What's much more likely is this difference of perception. The men try to have sex with a woman, let's say after a dinner where they've paid the bill, and they don't think it's forced, but the woman does. And that happens, I think, all over the place. I actually do think you're right about the 100%, but when we think about sexual harassment, when I was a graduate student, so I got my PhD in 1975, I would say 100% of women in that graduate program had suffered sexual harassment. But nowadays, I think it's actually much, much more rare. Sexual harassment can be deterred by law because, you know, in those days when sexual harassment was regarded as just personal behavior, now it's regarded as illegal. And you're on notice from the time you're a young boy growing up. So law has educated men so that the good men are more likely to be whistleblowers and the men who do it are more likely to really be so sunk in their own pride that they really can't be educated by law. But there's a lot of improvement. Just having a clear rule about what constitutes sexual harassment is a big step forward. And I'll give you an example. In our university and in my own philosophy department, there was a young, actually a woman in this case, assistant professor, who wanted to have an affair with a male graduate student. And instead of just going ahead and having the affair, she went to the chair and said, we would quite like to have an affair, but what are the rules? And the chair said, well, we'll set it up so that you never supervise this person's work and you never sit in any meeting where his work is being discussed. And then they went ahead and had the affair and by now they're married and they have children and, and so forth. But that's the way having the rules there prevents abuse because it might have been an abusive relationship if she had power over him and there were no rules preventing her from assessing his work. That's a great example. So now since we've just been talking about sexual harassment, what is sexual harassment and how is it treated before the law? And what are the rules that have helped us get to where we are today? Okay, so sexual assault, of course, is a criminal offense, and there are various different degrees of it, but it's always handled by the criminal law, which means in the United States that it's handled mainly by the laws of the different states. Sexual harassment is a federal offense. It's defined as an offense of sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The breakthrough was that feminist lawyers, one major one was an African-American lawyer named Paul E. Murray. Another one became famous later, Catherine McKinnon, got to work convincing people that it would be correct to see this as an instance of sex discrimination. Because they thought that if we can show that existing law of discrimination in Title VII, that already covers this, then we have cut through the problem. And indeed, people listened. Well, of course, McKinnon made the case very powerfully in her book, Sexual Harassment of Working Women. One judge that I know said he thought that's the single most influential book by a legal academic that's ever been written. So the judges and and the courts began to understand that this is sex discrimination, but then they had to define it. Now, it was pretty obvious that if there's a quid pro quo, sleep with me or you don't get promoted or you lose your job, that's sexual harassment. But they also knew that there's much more to it than that. And so now this concept of the hostile work environment was developed. What is it to have a hostile work environment? It might include some physical 
sort of touching, but it needn't. It just has to be an environment that persistently denigrates women. It doesn't even need to include sexual relations. There's one major case I talk about, the first woman who worked in General Motors plant in Indiana, who was bullied and with sexual stereotypes and people cut up her working overalls. They wrote obscenities on her toolkit and they even urinated at her from the catwalk. But they never tried to have sex with her. So that is another kind of sexual harassment. But then how to define it? So two concepts were considered. Should it be something that's involuntary or should it be simply unwelcome? Because if it's involuntary, that really means it has to be close to force. But they wanted to make it broader. So they said, no, it can be unwelcome merely. The first major case was of an African-American woman who was the plaintiff, and she had actually consented to sex with the supervisor on several occasions, but it was unwelcome. She didn't want to, and she just did it because her job was at stake. So unwelcomeness was the, the key concept. But then how bad does it have to be? The court said it just has to be pervasive and serious. So pervasiveness, how many times, just a single remark is not enough, but a pattern is what they're looking for. And how grave is it? Now, these are squishy concepts and the, the cases don't always come out right. There's more legal work to be done there, but at least it's big progress. So um, in terms of being able to define it, what is the guidance that you would give? Given that we're a common law country and the law evolves through precedent and case law, there's no point in trying to have a formal definition on top of this, but we need case law to lead us in the right direction. That's how these other concepts have been clarified over time. We need more women on the bench who see these things from a woman's point of view. Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has written about this and said, what looks to a man like mere joking and horsing around, from a woman's point of view, you understand how grave it is. Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said she thought the main reason to have two women on the Supreme Court, at least, is that women are not all alike and they don't want to have just the woman's point of view, but we want to have a, several different women's points of view. Now, the other thing that needs to be clarified is liability. Sexual harassment, the plaintiff is an individual, like Michelle Vincent, the African-American woman who brought the major first case. But the defendant is not the supervisor or the person who does the harassing. It is the employer. And so if the employer can show, oh, we're not responsible because we put out guidelines and rules and they just didn't follow them, then they sometimes get off of the charge. Often the perpetrator also has to show that he was ignorant of the rule or something like that. The first thing that should happen is that we, we should at least consider making dual liability, that the, the perpetrator also is liable. Sometimes, of course, it's a criminal offense as well, and then she could bring a criminal charge. But when it isn't, if there's liability of both the employer and the perpetrator, that might be a step forward. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Nussbaum in a moment. I want to take a quick second to thank today's sponsor, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan hosts one of the best interview podcasts around. 
and I know a thing or two about interviews, so that is high praise. Jordan uses his questions to help you get better informed, think more critically, and make sense of the world in new ways. His guests are world-class athletes, business leaders, scientists, thinkers, and everyone in between. You never know quite what you're going to get, but you can rest assured you'll learn something new. With over 500 episodes in his back catalog, you can dive in and swim around in the knowledge he shares. I really enjoy the show and think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I think one of the best examples here is the Division I ball players, because there, there have been lots of complaints against Pacific ball players and the sport in general. And yet they are completely insulated because there are these booster organizations that pay for legal fees, that insulate the players, that make the charges go away, that victim blame uh, and victim shame. So in what way does Division One football and basketball show us what we still have to do? Of course, there it's usually sexual assault. It's not even a workplace hostile environment sort of thing. It's that there's an encouragement and a kind of free pass given to players who commit actual crimes. Because according to the NCAA rules, if they're even charged with a crime, they're not eligible to play. And it's not even the university that's in charge in these cases. As you mentioned, there are these investment groups, they're apparel companies and other rich people who form a kind of nexus with the university. They pretend to be a part of the university and they are so influential that they can really hire and fire the president of the university. So they, together with the coach, form a, a kind of conspiracy to avoid accountability. It's particularly bad in football. I think basketball has improved considerably, largely because players are, are going after just one year and they're going to the NBA. And increasingly, the NBA has developed minor leagues, encouraging more and more players not to go into the college thing at all. I think that's quite possible for basketball. But football is different. Football is played only in the United States and maybe a little bit in Canada. And so they don't have any other source of players but the colleges. And it's enormously expensive. There's a kind of rat race to compete for the best players. You have to have the best facilities. And that's where the boosters come in. They invest, but then they expect to call the tune. So that is hard to see what's going to happen next. And yet, Something has got to give because the Supreme Court is going to hear this antitrust case about whether they can be continue to be called student athletes, therefore not really paid a salary. And I think the um, universities are going to lose that these people have to be paid a salary. Well, the minute they're paid a salary, it makes no sense to pretend that they're students. They're like hired entertainment, basically. But then will they still recruit the players that way. I don't know, but it'll be fascinating to see what happens next. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea to be like, well, if we're just going to hire these people, 
then are they even going to pretend to go to school like they're pretending to go to school now? <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned was that there are these, what is it, paper courses? They're the professors yes. write their own papers. And I thought, wait, I didn't even know this was happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a race to the bottom. It's just in the structure of the system. This is why I say Division One can't be reformed. It really has to be abolished because of the collective action problem. If there are 150 schools competing for, let's say, each year, five big talents, well, of course, they're going to lower the standards academically, lower the behavioral standards. Notre Dame, which used to really have very high standards for both academics and behavior, has already gone down that road of lowering standards. So I talk about a case where they allowed a player to be admitted who had already been convicted of assaulting his high school teacher. And then while he was a student, he raped a student at a neighboring college and she subsequently committed suicide. And Notre Dame just covered up the whole thing. And then this player who went on to the NFL and played for Atlanta almost immediately committed a terrible crime. He killed his girlfriend's dog, who was a little teeny dog, a Yorkshire Terrier. Uh, and so then the team let him go. So he's no longer playing in the NFL. The NFL is much better than the college leagues. They mean business and they have real discipline. And the reason is they have lots of players who could do the job, but the colleges don't. They have to cling to their one big talent. Well, I think when you talk about the NFL, it's also because that's a real workplace. It's also regulated now by proper rules in a way that colleges aren't. You mentioned a really interesting idea in the Assault on Campus chapter on having insurance. Can you talk about the insurance idea? The brilliant idea is due to my co-author, who is a law and economics professor, a wonderful scholar, Saul Levmore. We want to incentivize prompt reporting. And we're trying to think through this problem of why is it that so often there's sexual assault but there's no reporting. And so one of the parts of our solution is this idea that each entering student would get insurance through something like a, a law firm. And then the person who is charged repeatedly with sexual assault and found to have some accountability would soon lose his insurance, just the way that if you're a bad driver, you're going to lose your insurance or, or have to pay a, an exorbitant premium. And that would be a deterrent. And it would also encourage people to think there's some reality to the fact that if I report, something will really happen. It's like when you're in an accident and there's an incentive to report because the other party has insurance. And so you know that if you charge them, then you can get compensation. Another thing is that if fraternities have clusters of such people who lose their insurance, then maybe that whole fraternity would be tossed off of campus. So anyway, I hope somebody tries this out. Yeah, I hope so, too. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And to your point, I think fraternities would be like the number one liability. I mean, they would lose their insurance almost immediately. But so you talk about a future with trust and a radical type of love, a future with a justice that seeks reconciliation and a shared future as opposed to retribution. How do we get there? What are your ideas on how we can have this kind of, uh, I don't want to say ideal, but, you know, a future that's really a hopeful path forward. Well, I think the first thing really is law, because when there are laws and wherever there are clear workplace rules, things are much better. 
and they've gotten so much better in universities than they were before because of the existence of rules. I mean, you mentioned quite rightly that the NFL and all the pro leagues have clear rules. And then when somebody offends, we know what's going to happen. But the players on campus don't have clear rules or and there's an incentive for them to offend. And in the arts is another area where everything is so amorphous because the big shots are powerful over everyone. This is how Harvey Weinstein could offend again and again, because people who weren't his employees right then thought, oh, well, I've only got a job for the next two months. Maybe someday Harvey Weinstein will hire me. So what we need is clear rules. And right now the arts labor unions are starting to be much tougher. They have been in the past very weak. But it's partly because they haven't had a bargaining partner until now. And now the management is getting much better, too. The infusion of women's viewpoints and really progressive men's viewpoints into the arts world has made management quite different from what it otherwise would have been. So I think that structure and law are the first part of the solution. I think when it's formal, principled, and announced ahead of time, then if you offend, you have already been notified and it's on you. So then Me Too comes along. Now, I think Me Too has been very good in the sense that it's made lots and lots of women come forward. When people might have thought, oh, well, there are one or two bad apples. Now they see that it's a real problem that pervades our whole society. But the negative side is that it's led to a culture of public shaming punishing people simply by spreading viral stories on social media. But we don't want that. We don't want people to be punished by the crowd. We want due process of law. And I think we don't have that in the case of Me Too. No doubt, vast majority of the accusations have merit. But we can't tell that because there's malice, there's extortion, there are all kinds of possibilities when you get a celebrity or even not so much of a celebrity. There's revenge. So that's what worries me. I think we want a justice that's impartial, in which the accused gets a chance to defend him or herself, and in which the accuser is heard. And it's not impossible to have that. In fact, we're working more and more toward that in the criminal law and in the law of sexual harassment. But I think we want our more informal tribunals to mimic that as closely as they possibly can. And that means for me that the accused gets a free lawyer. I'm really a big advocate of that for campus tribunals because they always try to discourage the accused from having a lawyer and of course, you're allowed to have one person in the room who's your advisor, but if it's not a lawyer, what good is that? We want evidence and we want a process. The other thing that troubles me about Me Too is there are two things that are conflated. One thing is the wonderful demand for justice. But with this is a kind of retributive anger. I want to get this person because of what he did to me. Now, demands for punishment can be retributive, like an eye for an eye. But I am quite opposed to that type. There are other ways that we can think of punishment. It can deter people. It can reform people. It can educate society. And it can express society's values. And all of those roles for punishment, I still think we should keep and emphasize, and they're essential to the administration of justice. So I think in general, we should always think in a forward-looking way and try to make life better in the future. 
we have to move forward as a society in a different spirit. So my great hero in this domain is Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote quite a lot about anger and retribution. And what he basically said is there are two different ways you can face a bad thing that's been done to you. And one is the backward looking retributive way. And he called that confused and not radical. The radical thing is to actually try to move forward and create new structures and new relationships. You need to purify your anger, get rid of that payback part, and then combine the outrage with a forward-looking faith and hope and a certain kind of love. What it means is you see a root of goodness in everyone, the possibility of change. And so you're committed to separating the deed from the doer. You don't want to damn a person just for one act. You want to say that act can be utterly condemned, but the person always deserves respect as a human being, and we have to punish with that in mind. So I think that's what we need, a kind of forward-looking hope and faith, and to seek a kind of just reconciliation, I think is beginning to happen. I, I see it in, in, in individual relationships. It's all around us. But as a society, I, I think that's how we need to go forward. So concretely, what is maybe one thing or two things I could be doing as an everyday citizen to practice this kind of forward-looking justice or to demand it from our system? I think that what should I do is always contextual. So if you're in a city that's reconsidering its penal laws or in a state, you can be a part of that movement. If you don't want to have anything to do with law, you can be a part of more informal movements that are really not retributive, that are justice-oriented. I think the Mothers for Drunk Driving is such a movement because instead of just trying to destroy all the drunk drivers, they tried to get clear rules about enhanced penalties for drunk driving so that people will be deterred. And I think that's been a spectacular success. And I think it's the same thing with sexual assault. People have to understand there are consequences. And I think in terms of sexual harassment, most people have learned this already. Sexual assault is more complicated because so often on campus, both parties are really, really drunk. But then we have to try to look behind that. I also think one thing we could be doing is campaigning for lowering the drinking age. And this may seem paradoxical, but the reason is the binge drinking that goes on on campus goes on unsupervised because adults cannot be present or they're going to themselves be committing a criminal offense of encouraging the delinquency of a minor. So all campus administrators would like 18 to be the drinking age so that they could go to these parties and they could supervise. And if something's getting out of hand, they could stop it before it gets out of hand. But the biggest thing, whatever contact anyone has with young people, make the women aware that they are empowered, that their no really means no. And affirmative consent is what has to be there for it not to be a crime. So if you do not consent, then if it happens to you, it's a crime. So this is all a task of education that we can all do. And educating young men is a bigger task still because they're going to have a lot of peer pressure out there. And I think in high school, it's very good to have courses on this. They have to learn this thing early because by the time they get to the college and the workplace, 
if they form bad habits, it's much harder to get rid of them. So I think anyone who has contact with young people, just talk about it or even just tell your story. I mean, if you've been sexually harassed, sexually abused, don't be ashamed and let people know how you felt and how your dignity was used as an instrument of somebody else's gratification and power. And I think that's what Me Too has done that's good. We're telling each other these stories now, but I think informally, that's what absolutely every person can do. That's great. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think if you're a feminist, not just in America, but in the world, it's hard not to be hopeful because if you think about a hundred years ago, what was the world like for women? In very few countries, could women even vote? And now every country in the world, even Saudi Arabia, 2015, women can vote. Women are outnumbering men in college and university education in every country in the world. Whereas when I was applying to colleges, there were only a, a few I could apply to and, and not the major Ivy League schools. So there's such progress and so much rapid progress. The invention of the concept of sexual harassment, which didn't exist before 1970s, and great reform and change in the law of sexual assault. But of course, it's sticky because often men are living with women. And when you're living with somebody and you've been brought up to think that that person who's living with you should be your tool, you have a hard time giving that up. Men want to achieve and they want to progress and they have to have somebody to help take care of the kids and increasingly take care of the elderly relative who has moved in. So that problem we haven't solved as a country. I do think that elements of Biden's Families Act will help a great deal. And I hope that gets through because we're the only wealthy country who doesn't have support for families. It's crazy. If women are getting college and university education, if they're getting employed, more and more, they're going to demand a better deal in the household. So yeah, I mean, another thing, of course, to do to make this world a better place is just get in there and do some childcare, do some elder care and do some housework. And if you're a man, don't think that somebody else is going to do it for you. Here, here. Totally agree with you. Well, thank you very much for your scholarship. Thank you for all the things that you're doing to advance the cause of equality for all women or depending on where you are, young men and of course, people of color, which you also write about at length in the book. So thank you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. And thank you so much for your great questions. My favorite part about the book and the interview is that Professor Nussbaum makes clear that assaulting and harassing women is an abuse of power that originates with the objectification of women. Also, I have a new appreciation about the progress we've made as a society in the last 50 years. I do believe that our culture has changed significantly, and while there's more to be done, harassment at the workplace is much reduced, and more often than not, those who commit assault are held accountable. I'm hopeful that the prescriptions in law and structure like better rules will bring about even better habits in empowering women and the powerless and recognizing their full humanity. It's the first step towards practicing reconciliation and justice with radical love, void of revenge and retribution. 
Next week, our guest is Jennifer Taub. She's the author of Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, which examines who gets a pass for committing such crimes, the actual consequences of what we often think of as victimless crimes, and ways to hold the perpetrators accountable. To me, implicit immunity means that based on your status in our society, you're going to be given a pass and a lot of second chances and third chances, and in some cases, infinite chances, even if you violate white collar criminal laws. And when someone of that status ends up getting prosecuted and put in jail, they end up going to a kind of club fed, a minimum security prison camp. People often emerge from prison and they can rehabilitate themselves. Sometimes they get full presidential pardons after, and they certainly have a lot of money often. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.